This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Great to have you with us for another live stream uh, with a guest who I don't know, and I've been chatting to before. So, Bran of London, thank you so much for your time this evening. Hey, good to speak to you. I hope I haven't kept you up, because a little bit later there in Israel than it is in the UK. So, hope I haven't kept you up tonight. You're cutting into the the Netflix time, so (laughs) it's all right. (laughs) Well, I hope this is more entertaining than whatever you're going to watch on Netflix. Um, Let me... so. Bran, what was it on the Times of Israel? It said that Bran of London met Alia from the UK to Israel in 2009. For many years, he has blogged and broadcast about Israel, technology, and other subjects. Most recently, which isn't very recent, I don't think, he's focused on the experience of driving an electric car every day. (laughs) Five years? I'm just about to finish paying off the four-year loan on the car that replaced the electric car. (laughs) Everybody Um, else is suddenly getting them. I I did it. Exactly. Well, that's... um, So, and you've got a a PhD, but today owns a business in Israel. And I see from your your, uh, Twitter handle, your donors, um, Indigenous Rights Activist, VP Tech at JPB Liberty, Suing yeah. tech alliance, yes. Uh-huh. Fortified Zionist Israeli Jew. That should trigger anyone who's on the far right watching. So they're your trigger words. Your pronouns, doctor or sir. Well, m- mine would be either your greatness or something. So <laughs> I'll call you sir and you can call me oh great one or something. Well, I am actually a knight of the No Agenda Roundtable. That's the, the No Agenda podcast. And I am, my, in fact, my knighting certificate is, is actually just up here on the wall. That's that's my, because I'm a sir, according to the No Agenda show, because they decided, why should it be just the queen that gets yeah. to give out these knighthoods? So they give out knighthoods. Up <laughs> you donate. <laughs> and and uh, we go on, I just have up on this side, I have my Israeli flag, learning today that you're a, a Mossad handler, and I think your T-shirt possibly is probably unwise if you're an undercover Mossad handler to wear a Mossad T-shirt. But I, yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story of this. T- I, not much more to introduce. I, I I do all sorts of stuff now. Um, the story of this T-shirt will take us into the first thing we're going to talk about, which is yeah, this, this T-shirt was purchased at the top of a mountain overlooking Syria during the Syrian civil war in a gift shop with Tommy Robinson. And the date, and I know the date precisely, it was the 9th of November, 2016, because it was the day that we learned that Donald Trump had won. Uh, Cause we woke up uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the Canary. And then we went touring up in the, the, the mountains the the golan heights and that was the day that we took a picture or i took a picture of tommy what we were driving up towards the golan heights we were just in the just leaving the sea of galilee to go up and we see a bunch of israeli tanks in a field and typical israelis you know i I say to my friend who was our tour guide i said should we just go you know see what they're doing 
and they were just sitting around because that's what tanks generally do they just sit in fields and um so we drive my off-road car with tommy and his friends it was a packed car six of us in the car we drive and bump and bump over these sort of the rutty tank trucks and get as close to the tanks as we can and we hop out and we say can we take some pictures and the tank commander's sitting on his tank you know yeah he doesn't give a shit and um so we start taking pictures and that's when i took this picture of tommy in his as he calls them shit shorts and flip-flops <laughs> standing on an israeli tank with a bored tank commander sitting there you know and i said and there was an m16 on the tank and tommy's tommy's never played with guns at all <laughs> <laughs> so i said to him pick it up so he picks up this gun like a you know and he's sort of holding it in the most delicate and ginger way <laughs> terrified this thing's gonna go off and it's got a big what what you know is that the it's loaded but it's got a big orange plug in the breech mm. so it can't fire you know you have to pull this plug out and then it'll, it'll shoot but he's holding it all sort of gingerly and not properly you know he's not really doing the whole and he's but he's standing on this tank so i i photographed this and um i said i actually sent a a, a message to a guy i knew at the idf spokesperson's office i said do you mind if we you know this this might cause some problems he says don't worry we'll we'll handle it and <laughs> we put that out and of course it was on the evening standard <laughs> and then it was on because what happened was a muslim group saw it and they put out a press release that said tommy robinson is in occupied syria fighting <laughs> for the israeli army <laughs> in shorts and flip-flops <laughs> standing on a tank and um and then that that event also made it into um uh, Nick Griffin wrote this incredible screed about uh, homosexuals taking over Britain and, and, <laughs> and all sorts of other stuff in there. But there's a there's a whole page about me because I am obviously able to get into closed military zones <laughs> of special import in Israel. And I swear to you, we just drove off a road, bounced over the tank trucks and took some photos and that was it. And um, but this T-shirt was bought that afternoon uh, at the top of the mountain, and Tommy bought one too. And so, yeah, that was the first time I'd actually met Tommy, but I've been working with him for years prior hmm. to that. Well, let's um, we'll we'll get on that. But I, I guess in Israel, it's uh, you don't have to go far without bumping into mil a military unit. I guess a different checkpoint. So, I life there. I I guess although it is. Fairly well, we, peaceful, we don't but, see, you know, yeah. in Tel Aviv, you see soldiers because, you know, if you go into central Tel Aviv, if you go near one of the bases, they'll all be in the McDonald's at lunchtime, <laughs> you know, having lunch. And the girls will be, um, you know, dressed in their uniforms and maybe carrying a, a, a rifle, sometimes not, sometimes and then. Or you'll get on a bus and there'll be a guy sitting next to you with a grenade launcher attachment onto a big... Uh, but. And, and, you know, military helicopters do fly by from time to time. But, you know, that's we, – we're, we're, we're militarized, but without it being, you know, it, it would look strange to Brits who, are never, mm. who don't even see armed police. Mm. And we've got these, you know, 18, 19-year-olds with M16s everywhere. So well, that's I guess it. it. 
it's like me growing up in Northern Ireland with all the troops there. So again, uh, uh, yeah, um, lots, lots of troops and, and police and you see tanks at different points, but that was a, a long time ago. So um, <laughs> yeah, let, let, I'm curious about your, obviously you wrote for, the Times of Israel. I oh, guess yeah, I that finished a long time ago. Yeah. No, no, but I guess that finished whenever you had Tommy over. Your last piece was a defense of Tommy. But yeah. so how did you end up? I mean, your your background is what IT. So I mean, how do you end up doing stuff in the media? And normally IT it's behind the scenes, but you've also got your blog and you put stuff out. So how does that kind of connect with something which is behind the scenes to actually doing stuff out there and even writing articles journal as journalist? Well, um, I started getting involved in, you know, current affairs and politics and stuff, I don't know, mid-2004 or so. Um, and I started doing some, a podcast, actually. I took over somebody else's podcast, hosted it for a while, way before anybody knew what podcasting was. So um, I was way too early on that. But, and then I also started blogging. And, uh, you know, when I was living in England, that was when I was still living in England. and I did talk a lot about Islam, uh, an awful lot, to the point where that was one of the reasons why I decided to leave England and come to Israel, because I just mm. I didn't, I didn't want to raise Jewish kids. I foresaw that it would get increasingly problematic to be Jewish without being overly Jewish. You know, you could be really, really Jewish and go live in your little closed community in Golders Green. And that kind of Jewish, you probably wouldn't be affected for a while. But even then, you know, now it's becoming a problem. Mm. Uh, there's a thing about Israel, which is that you can be culturally Jewish. I'm not mm. particularly observant. I'm not keeping kosher very often, very much at all. Um, I'm not obeying all of the rules of the Sabbath and so forth. But you bring your kids up here. They are Jewish by osmosis, the mm. calendar makes them jewish the 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 festivals that they know you know like i'm not i don't begrudge my my british upbringing learning all the hymns i know onward christian soldier and jerusalem and all of them um and i've got no problem with that and i went to a proper british public school um you know which everybody else would know as a private school and we had assembly every day with three hymns and organ and the, the, that that's what i was given but my kids are getting something completely different here, which is that they get to hear about, um, the, you know, the things that are Jewish mm. without that. I never, there's this, it's this hard line between, do you want to be really, really religious or do you want to be culturally Jewish? Mm. And it's hard to do the culturally Jewish bit outside of Israel. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, New York, there, you know, there are there are pockets of it. But then the trouble is outside of Israel, you tend to, to find that they go all liberal and, you know, mm. that, mm. that that scares me. And I mean, you know, I live in Tel Aviv where to be an overt BB supporter is a bit of a problem these days. Um, <laughs> but, that, you know, Tel Aviv is a, is a strange mm. cosmopolitan uh, out branch. Then again, I know, I know. You know, I've got some liberal friends, uh, one particular who lives in Jaffa, and she has become, let's say, a lot more right wing uh, mm. living in Jaffa, but where there's a higher proportion of Arabs. So 
it's a big mix here. But you can be Jewish without being like dedicated to every commandment. What was um uh, that that whole area which we'll not even go into if, uh, of taking apart the religious identity from the cultural identity? I mean, it's it's fascinating, but we don't have time to go into it, or else we'll get sidetracked on that. Yeah. But what was um again growing up as as Jewish in London uh, was did you find restrictions that obviously in Israel it's it's free or you're able to be yourself where maybe you felt you had to hide that away in in london was that the case in the you know when i grew up uh i didn't feel that i was constrained and i i think i know now that perhaps the school that i went the first school that my parents would have sent me to didn't take me and there was something about a quota of jewish people but i you know i, I i'm not going to say britain is institutionally racist or institutionally <laughs> anti-semitic i don't think it is i worked Towards the end of my time, though, um, you know, this is the mid early 2000s up to 2007 or so, I did work uh, as a management consultant, and I worked at some pretty high levels of government, but for government. Now, when I started being management consultant, I was doing mostly private companies, BAT mm. and Vodafone, and that was, I liked that, actually. You know, that was interesting. BAT's offices, British American Tobacco's offices on the banks of the Thames. You walk in, or this I was there, I don't know, this was 2006 or something. Mm. You walk in and Jack Villeneuve's Formula One car was the, was in the lobby. Um, and that was the one he'd won the championship yeah. the year before. You go up, all the meeting rooms were named after um, uh, impressionist painters. Mm. And so, of course, if you were in the Monet room, guess what was on the walls? And it mm. weren't. Prince. <laughs> so there was Monet and Manet and Degas and <laughs> those are the different rooms. But I lasted I lasted four days at that that assignment before I asked to be reassigned because it was the one and only place in my life where they were smoking at desks. Mm. Uh, and so, but anyway, so I I liked I loved I loved England. I liked growing up there. But a couple of things did happen. I I knew that. There were a couple of, I had married an Israeli woman and it wasn't a Jewish thing, but there were a couple of government contracts that our company won uh, for the, uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and another one for, actually for the Atomic Weapons Research a Agency. Mm. And I should have been on one or other of those jobs and I mm. was never allowed to be put forward for it because the company didn't want the hassle of trying to clear me with an Israeli wife. Uh, and I found that to be unnerving. Um, I just, you know, anyway, that, that was it. It, mm. it, it. it was one of those things that I found. But what I, what I actually feel about England is that at the upper echelons and in those top levels of the civil service, and especially the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, yes, they're anti-Semitic. I don't know what mm. it is, they are in love with Arabs and Arab culture. And it turns out, as we've learned in the last two years, thanks to Trump and Bibi, it turns out that Arabs actually don't hate us, mm. you know, that, that, that we can actually get along. Um, but there, was, there is mm. this element, and it's very, you know, it's, it's part of Islam that they've mm. got to, Judaism is a problematic, it's a problem, it's a thorn in their side, yep. the continuing existence of Jews. 
but they can set it to one side. They can always choose. This is the bit of Islam we're going to just ignore. And, and for, for some reason, we've had politicians in the West, mostly, uh, other than Geert Wilders and a, you know, a handful of others, who don't understand how to talk to and deal with the Islamic world. To, to, you can't ever, I don't think you can ameliorate everything that's, that's there, but you can give them the room to choose the better way forward. And, that's, and, and, and that is what I think Trump actually managed to do with all these peace treaties that, that we've got yeah. now. Oh, the total, and I mean, people have no clue how astonishing this has been the last year and a half of this. Well, let's let's hope that the Islamic nations are more interested in making money than following their religion, and possibly life might be a hell of a lot simpler. So, yeah, if you give them that option, yeah. yes, I, I, and I mean, but telling them that they must be more Islamic. And, and, you know, sort of what the nations of the West have been doing with pandering to, to every whim and, you know, sort of halal this and, and uh, Sharia compliant finance and all of this stuff. No, you know, it's like what I love about Israel is that we've actually got uh, this is a story I tell all the time. Israel is one of the highest immigration countries that's ever existed. OK, there's a specific period from the fall of the wall from 1989. Uh, until 1999, when Israel's population went from about four, I haven't looked these up in ages, 4.5 million to 5.7 or 8 million. Mm. We took in, a, and, and we took in 1 million Russian immigrants in 10 years. Wow. 20% of our population mm. in 10 years. So what's the population of Britain? 60 million. Yeah. Try and add 20 million new people in the next 10 years and see what happens to your country. And don't, and don't give Boris any ideas. No, but, but we did it. <laughs> but why did we do it? Not just because they were Jews, and many of them, you know, many were not very Jewish. But when they came here, they came to assimilate into Jewish culture. And I remember something very clearly. I think it was the first or second year I was here. There was a Davis Cup tennis match uh, in Tel Aviv, Russia versus Israel. And it was at the big basketball stadium, which is basketball is probably the biggest sport here. Football, and but the one that, that Israel has reasonable international success at is mm. basketball. Um, and it was at the big basketball stadium. And it was Russia versus Israel. And I would say the, the, the crowd was a good two-thirds Israeli Russians. They were all cheering for Israel. And there was no, you know, there was no, you know, the, you remember the Tebit test? Mm. Yeah, I mean yeah. Norman Tebbit proposed yeah. it, you know, because he went to Edgbaston or, or or and yeah. said, you know, everybody's cheering for Pakistan. What's going on yeah. here? Israel managed that trick of bringing in a large immigrant population, but having them having telling them this is Israel, this is Israel, this is what you're going to be, and the second ger generation are all you, you wouldn't know it, you know, they they they're all speaking Hebrew and and. Yeah, that's yeah. because we've got a strong culture into which they came, and it's it's a different it's a different calendar, it's yeah. a different timetable. The week starts on Sunday, you know. But that's who we are. That's what you have to assimilate to. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, and it pushed 
you know, now English is now button four on the telephone because <laughs> Hebrew is one, Arabic is two, Russian is three, and, and English got pushed down to four. So you're pressing the fourth option, I assume. If it's there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's jump into, I could talk to you about Israel. Maybe we'll do a whole live stream sometime later on. But you can follow Brian, Brian of London, at his Twitter feed there, and obviously his website, Brian of London ME. So I encourage you to jump in, have a look at both of those. And let me just uh, – so um, – uh, there's some names here I don't recognize. So let me, Rother Hamvenman. It was first evening all. Good to see you, Rother. There's Julie. Hi. The Clown World. Evening, Peter O'Brien. Good to see you. Kyla Fishlips. Oh, Tommy, Tommy. Good to see you. Uh, WKY. Let's say something about his trial because I followed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which obviously you did your podcast. And obviously, I was, we put a piece out last Monday and we're, and we're waiting. So what are, what are your thoughts I, well, on this? What I want to, the thoughts on this is that that was actually the British media on trial, and they're guilty. Yeah. Um, you know, Tommy is the, the – and you saw this in the way that they covered or not covered the trial. They were there the first day to report on what Jamal and his father said and breathlessly report all the same allegations which match what the press printed. Yeah. But the press, the whole British press, printed a pack of lies yeah. and they are not able at, even at this late stage even after all the evidence that tommy presented they're not able to even countenance the idea that they're going to be shown to have lied and when they're shown to have lied there will just be silence utter utter silence the only person making any noise will be tommy and yeah. his you know to the audience that we've been able to keep for him uh following you know the the deletions by facebook and twitter and all the rest which uh, i mean if, if i'm being completely honest you, you know i lost my facebook page the same day that tommy did because i was an administrator on tommy's page mm. and they nuked anybody who had ever been an administrator and in fact i think that they took out raheem kassam briefly Probably. because i think somewhere in the whole when tommy was in prison Somebody had made him an administrator on the page for 10 minutes. And his account was nuked that morning, but he he went and got it back via you know Washington connections or whatever. Well, but, he of course headed up, it was the free Tommy Rally 2018 or so that he was yeah. the MC of that event in Whitehall. Well, he denied that he'd ever been on the Facebook page, but I actually think yeah, that yeah. Kalen or George had yeah. made him an administrator for 10 mm -hmm. minutes. And so that was why that morning any facebook account that had ever been connected and you know the accusation was that that facebook put into the media was that his facebook page had called for the beheading of muslims i you know i'm proud to say i knew pretty much every post that went up on it i didn't write them all but i wrote i, I read them we never did that and of course mm. you and i both know that had tommy had ever written oh let's go out and behead some muslims that would have been on the cover of the Daily Mail 15 minutes later. Yeah, yeah. Right? Without a doubt. There's not a, there's not a hair's chance in the world that that wouldn't have been screenshotted around. The, and Facebook themselves could never even provide a screenshot. And that was libel. And 10 years back with the EDL, I had said to Tommy and I'd said to people around, I said, look, we have to fight this far right thing. 
And in fact, I got into a, like a nine month, uh, I, I was behind the scenes. I was writing letters, handing them to someone mm. who was then sending them to the, the press complaints thing. And I was trying to fight with the Daily Mail over the designation far right. And eventually I got them to put a file, you know, the, the editor wrote back and said, we will put a file note that says that the EDL and Tommy Robinson object to the term far right. And, but that was the best we could ever do. And, and the trouble with the British, the way British libel rules work is once you've lost your, your good name, you, you can never sue again. You yeah. can never sue to get it back. But this case where they sued him, this is, it's hugely different. Um, and by going out and proving really, and, and I'm convinced obviously, proving that, that the whole thing that the press put out was a pack of lies, it, it, it's, it's a turnaround yeah. point. Uh, how many people's more people's eyes can we open with this stuff? Yeah. I don't know, but he he's done an astonishing journey. And and personally, I knew years ago that he was a very bright guy. Anybody um, anybody who reads only the newspapers about him, you'll think he's a complete idiot, a knuckle dragging idiot, but he isn't. And to 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 do to mount your own defence. Mm. in the high court in front mm. of a judge i'm involved in a court action in australia which my friend is leading i you know I've, i'm sitting in on court sessions now i i couldn't do that yeah. i mean i'm a bright guy but I, I i would never i would never even dream of doing it and i i'm just i'm shocked that he's done this but i'm very very pleased and i, I just i hope for once we get a result but you know, I, I just I don't have that much faith in the British system anymore. No, I agree. If it was anyone other than Tommy, I believe the result would come down in, in his favor. But what what he's done and Tommy, whatever challenge he faces, he's one of those people who will always rise to it. And nine times out of ten, will will do a hole in one. He will go for it and he will take it on and he will succeed. And he's just one of those people that he he'll put his hand to something, he will work hard at it, and he will make it work. And yeah. And this is another one, being in court, <laughs> a four-day hearing in the high court. I mean, only in the UK could a playground splat, a spat get That's to the, the high thing. court. Crazy. The actual details of this are so ridiculously, <clears throat> ridiculously, you know, banal. They should never, I mean, this should never be in the yeah. courts. I mean, it's not, it's, it's the kind of stuff that even schools shouldn't be. Though, Having said that, it's quite clear that there's covering up going on. You know, and, the, and the, this, what's so disgusting though, is that this was taken by the British media. And this is what I said in my video. And, and this is what disgusts me is this was used by the British media as a stick to beat all of England, Northern England in particular, especially mm. Northern England, because they really hate Northern England. And they're all racists and they're all white and they're horrible people. And it's just so not true. Mm. And I know this, you know, Tommy, when Tommy came to Israel, he came with two people. One was black, one was white. You know, that's just Tommy. And in fact, the, the black guy is this friend of his who's shorter or the same height as Tommy, but he's, he's <laughs> shorter. <an MLA laughs> Surely <almost>. not. <laughs> 
but he's an MMA fighter and, it, you know, just bulging muscles everywhere and covered in tattoo. So we go up, we try to go up to the Temple Mount and um, we get to the top of the ramp uh, and, <laughs> and we walk up and Tommy's covered in tattoos. You know what Tommy's tattoos yeah. are? And he's got yeah. crosses and crusader shit all yeah. over his arms. The black friend and the Arabs up there are not, if, if you want to see racism, you you see Arabs at the top of the Temple Mount looking at a black guy who's got a cross tattooed on his <laughs> neck and he's wearing a V-neck T-shirt so that they cross his hair. So the, the guards, the, the, the whack police, they tell Tommy and this guy, you're not coming in like this. And they bring bring forward two shawls like they would give mm. to the women to cover up <laughs> the tattoos. And then they're handing them to Tommy, and then they say 20 shekels. And Tommy says to them, what, you want us to pay for this? And they say, yes, 20 shekels. And he says, I'm not paying your jizzier. <laughs> so you can't go back down the way you come up. So he turns around. I take a picture of him and his friend standing in front of the gold dome. And then they, the police just walk him to the exit because mm. they won't allow him to stand on the Temple Mount with his uncovered Christian symbol. That's Tommy. But anyway, the, the, the point is, I don't think Britain is a particularly racist place. I just don't. But the media are looking for this. And that was what this Syrian, you know, that was what the story was with this yeah. Syrian boy being waterboarded. I mean, what nonsense. What nonsense. And, and to have an entire high court case about that. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, and, well, the, the point here is that what actually should have happened is somebody should have come forward and given Bailey and his family half a million quid to go sue the entire press. Oh, yeah. Because he was defamed massively. Yeah. That nobody's stepping up with that kind of money to do that for him. And that, that's, that's the sadness of Britain. Um, and, and in the case to have those, those kids, four or five, whatever kids coming down, and because they don't listen to the narrative and they could teach a lot of adults something that actually go with what you believe. You don't calculate whether it will help you or not. You just do the right thing. And they've decided it's the right thing to come down all the way down. Maybe you've never been in London before, obviously never been in a court before, never been cross-examined before. I mean, to do that as a teenager is frightening. And it's, yet it's, they're up for it. It's stunning. I mean, it, it, it to be, I mean, I've I've been deposed. I've been in sort of legal actions and stuff, and uh, it is not fun. Even if you're right, even if you know you're right, mm. it is. You've got this other lawyer, and they're assholes. They're always assholes, and it, the, there's no there's no reason to put yourself through that for someone else. Yeah, or, or it seems that you know very few people would do that. Uh, it, I just, I just hope that there's some justice for Tommy in Britain left. I really do. I think it's a very important case, uh, much more, you know, and it, important not for the facts of the case, but important for yeah. what's going on around it, and yeah. and especially the media, especially the way they treat, they just treat the country with contempt. And the American media does the same thing with yeah. their, you know, anti-Trump and and you know, dismissive of of all the people who voted for him. 
Well, Tommy and we are the deplorables, and I think we're very proud to be the deplorables. But what, I mean, I'm curious, what, how did you end up inviting Tommy to Israel? Oh, well, you know, there was actually a straight, so I, oh, to go all the way back, I, <laughs> I started looking at the EDL thinking, yeah. oh, God, here, here's another far right. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a part of West London. I knew what the National Front was. I knew what the BMP were. Mm. Um, and so some of my friends told me that, about the EDL, some people that, you know, mutual friends of ours. And they said, you know what? The, these guys seem to be different. And mm. So I joined and I was on the forums a lot. And they were in that there wasn't a great deal of time for the kind of the typical anti-Israel, anti-Zionists, you know, Zionist control the world type yeah. stuff, um, which, we, you know, we get them in the in Tommy's telegram and we bash them, yeah. and throw them out. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, when when Tommy today posts, you know, my Mossad handler, that, <laughs> that draws them out and then we can ban a few more. It's yeah. like, because we're very much for free speech. But go speak somewhere else. We just don't want to listen to you. And that's it. Yep. I, I'm I'm a free speech extremist, but I'm ban happy on Twitter because I just can't be bothered. I don't want to hear, yep. you know, I, I've heard every conspiracy theory. I know yep. all about the Rothschilds. Um, you know, I, oh, I don't have it with me. I've got a lovely pen from the Rothschild Bank because I had a meeting there and I've got an umbrella actually that says Rothschilds on it. Um, but it, it's just, so the EDL didn't tolerate that. And they mm. were very clear under the leadership of Tommy and, and Kev is great as well. Yeah. They were very clear what they were, what they were saying. And, and in fact, I helped with, I eventually got involved and I helped write some of the chart. And in fact, what I did was I'd been in America actually briefly and I'd met the head of the NRA, mm. the, the National Rifle Association. And this woman had told me, something which i i didn't take on board until that moment which was she said to me the national rifle association is a human rights organization fighting for the human right to self-defense that's yeah. what the nra is for and i went ding and then i thought so we wrote the charter of the edl and i put right at the top i said the the e the edl is a human rights organization fighting for the right to peacefully protest and that was in the charter right at the top and so every time we spoke to the press or anything, we said we're a human rights organization. Mm. And that's why, you know, I'm a, that's why I'm an, I'm an indigenous rights activist. I like using their language against them. It's nonsense. I am an indigenous rights. I am indigenous to this, you know, I've got 4,000 years of history yep. linking me to this piece of land. Yep. You know, uh, Hebron is down that way and uh, Shem where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was first placed on the ground after it came from Egypt in Israel. It, it's, it's 25 kilometers that way in the hills. I'm indigenous. You use that language. And uh, yep. anyway, so I got involved with Tom. I got involved with the EDL, but it was always up and down because he was always doing dumb stuff. You know, that was the days when nothing I, changes. I opened my computer one morning and I know, you know, I knew, I knew there was no way he was ever going to get into the US, but I knew that Pamela Geller kept inviting him to go to this 9-11 yeah. ceremony she was having. Yeah. So I opened my computer one day and there's a picture of him standing with Pamela and Robert mm. grinning and Kevin's on the side. And it's like, 
how the hell did he get into America? <laughs> and of course, he borrowed his cousin's passport, yeah. was arrested, and the Americans didn't want him arrested because the Americans were embarrassed. But of course, he went to prison for that. Yeah. And, and as soon as he goes to prison, the EDL starts being overrun by... Yeah, it, it's, it was always a very difficult thing to control. Um, but I, I maintained ties with him all through that, and I wound up proofreading his autobiography mm. and talking about it with Dave Rubin mm. in a bizarre chance meeting and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and he'd always said he wants to come to Israel. So, in you know, we finally managed to make it happen in November 2016. Um, and and that was it. We just I just took my wife's car and we drove around the country for a week, um, with a tour guide. Actually, has got a great story. Um, who was uh, almost stabbed to death by two Muslims, wow. uh, Arabs, and um, she survived. Her friend was murdered, and they went to prison. In fact, they're they're in prison now. Her two would be murderers. So, but she was our tour guide, and <laughs> so I, you know. Before before he comes, I, I sent Tommy a link to mm. her giving a presentation, and he did, and he didn't watch it. And he didn't listen. And then, like about a day before he was coming, he obviously watched it. And I get this panicky phone call. It's like, how do I talk to her? It's like, you know, it's like that's crazy. Were her stories? You know, I said you'll find out. She's just normal. <laughs> she's she's pretty good. Uh, and she was our tour guide. Um, wow. Not yeah, and and. It, yeah, <laughs> because, you know, I had to find somebody who'd been beaten up harder than Tommy by Islam. So. <laughs> well, well, the next one, part two, needs to be Tommy going with Alex Jones. That's what it needs to be. Full on. Yeah. Heights, both of them with guns. Funny. Yeah, Alex Jones. I'd, I don't, I'd love to meet Alex Jones. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, he's a, he's a really wild character in all directions. Mm. But he's a showman. And... Yeah. Um, and and I, I actually think on Israel and Jews, I think he's sound these days. I mean, I don't know. I can't account for everything he's ever said or, or that's ever been said on his network, that's for sure. But, you know, there's this somewhere along the line you have to differentiate. And I think ide I go for ideologies and, and, and uh, th there's an ideology of this sort of i don't know elitism globalism mm. israel is the antidote to globalism mm. because it's the last it's the most one of the most recent actual yeah. new nations a real nation but a nation that's got a real reason to exist mm. a history that that predates it by thousands of years and our creation is anti-globalist it's totally global you know because we mm. should be kumbaya with all the arabs around us yep. if we were going to be on a globalist thing there should be this whole pan-arab thing with jews living as dimmies happily ever after f that i mean that's yeah. never going to happen because some of us understand what they would request of us now if we are strong if we have merkava tanks we have 700 tanks you know that we have more tanks than the british army has horses and the british army has more horses than tanks we don't so, have many anything anymore in britain so yeah and, and we're, we're but but that's the only reason we exist without that we don't you know as if we lay down our weapons we will be gone that, that's and but and it, think, it, it, israel exists because some of those on the far right the far left they come to this 
um, understanding that Israel is part of this global conspiracy. Actually, for me, uh, it actually, as a Christian, it brings me the understanding is there's something bigger happening that Israel shouldn't exist in all practical terms. I remember re- watching a whole series called Against All Odds, Israel Survives, and it was a, a journalist who was intrigued by some of the stories you heard about Israel, modern-day Israel, and how they'd survived against all odds. And he started talking to people, and just fascinating 30-minute, probably a dozen, 15, 30-minute programs about different cases and how things happened, and it was unexplainable. So for me, actually, you think of something bigger, actually, as, as the divine as opposed to a conspiracy. Well, you know, uh, if the divine, yeah, you know, if they could, if the divine could just intervene and get us an actual government, but perhaps the perhaps the correct thing is that we shouldn't have a government. I, to be honest, I don't, I don't feel too bad not having a city. You know, maybe these governments aren't all they're cracked up to be, and actually, better stuff happens when we don't have a strong one. I, listen, Israel is definitely a weird. I'll tell you, one of the things that grabbed me the first year I got here. Um, again, this is, this is part of a Jewishness and an Israeliness that doesn't travel outside very well. We have our Memorial Day for the fallen soldiers, Yom Azikohan. Hmm. First, we, we, actually, they're a week apart. We have Yom Shoah for the, the Memorial for the Holocaust, and that has a, 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 a two-minute air raid siren for the whole country, and and the television starts playing. <coughs> documentaries about the Holocaust. Hmm. And then exactly a week later, we have Yom HaZikaron, which is the memorial for the fallen in wars and terror. And obviously the numbers are not even remotely comparable. But in mood of the nation, the, the, the Yom HaZikaron is a very, very important day. Every, like I live right next to a giant cemetery in North Tel Aviv. And this is one of the main military cemeteries. In fact, I think mm. the Munich athletes are buried here. It becomes, you cannot get in or out of our neighborhood. It, there's helicopters flying around um, because everybody knows somebody. I mean, my friend yeah. was murdered a couple of years ago, um, stabbed in the back at a shopping center in Gush Etzion. Um, uh, and then he, he, the guy stabbed him. My friend turned around, chased him, drew his gun and shot at the guy and then collapsed and died. And, wow. and it was, in fact, shooting at him that stopped him going and stabbing a, another woman. Anyway, we, we, we've all got, and I've only been here, you know, 10 years. I've got a story. I've got a couple of stories. Mm. We're all connected with, but what happens on that day is we have a siren at eight o'clock in the evening when the day starts, because days start in the evening. Then it carries through to the next day, 11 o'clock in the morning, two minutes siren, whole country stops, cars stop on the motorway, all of that stuff. Um, ceremonies in all of the cemeteries up and down the country. But then at eight o'clock in the evening, it flips. Eight o'clock in the evening, it's Yom Hatzma'ut. It's mm. Independence Day. It's fireworks. Mm. The kids are on the street spraying foam on everybody and banging each other with rubber, with inflatable hammers and wearing blue and white sparkly stuff. And the switch is at eight o'clock in the evening. It's 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 an it's a big deal because it's a yeah. it's a linkage. It's a this is why this is how we came to have Israel back. This is the sacrifices that were made by 
tens of thousands of people. Mm. And this is the independence we get from it. And and it it's not a gift, you know, the the names go all the way back to the late 1800s. Yeah. Because that was when there were Arab pogroms against Jews. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not about the Holocaust. It's not about 1948. It's not, it, it's, Jews have wanted to be in Zion mm. for millennia. Mm. We were, and then the, what makes it odd is that we, the British or the English never lost England. You know, they, they got invaded a little bit, but that was so long ago, nobody knows. The Scottish, I mean, who else wants Scotland? Who else wants Ireland? You know, mm. you can have a fight between the British and, and the, and the yep. Southern Irish over the... But <clears throat> you've never been kicked out. You've never been sent into exile for thousands of years, but retained that linkage. And so when I say I'm indigenous, my friend who's a... I spoke to him last night, actually, a Canadian Métis from the tribe. He's a North... He, he comes from somewhere. I once had to... I found it on a map. It's like... It's so far north of Calgary mm. that it's just like you can put four Israels or something between Calgary and where he's from. Mm. And he says that there are five elements of indigenousness. I haven't thought of this stuff for ages, but there's land, language, which is very important. There's culture. Mm. Um, there is blood, but that's just one of five. And then there's religion, there's a spirituality, he says. We've got all of those elements and they tie us to this land. Mm. You know, so many things that Jews do matter more here. I mean, we, 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 we've never lost that linkage and it's never not meant something. You know, the, the wedding ceremony says, if I mm. forget Jerusalem, may my right arm wither and fall off. Yeah. And we've said that in exile for a thousand years. It's, it's, that's a big deal. No, it is phenomenal for Israel to have disappeared as a nation for, what, two and a half thousand years, uh, and then to come back and the history and the culture and the religious faith to remain and all to be brought back. It is a... And to revive, you know, a language and stuff. It was never... It wasn't dead, but... And, and it was contentious because, you know, very religious Jews don't like the use of Hebrew in day-to-day -day speech because they mm. say that it's uh, the language of the Torah and it should be reserved for this and that. I don't, I don't like the... I understand their point, um, but I don't like the sort of extreme nature. But when, when rebuilding the modern Israel in this ancient land, reviving the language as a day-to-day -day language mm. is very, very important to us. Yeah. Very, very important because it's a cohesive, I mean, it sucks to be me and largely illiterate, you know, heavily educated, but I have to ask my child to help me with, with text messages <laughs> from the post office. <laughs> but, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, you know, still it's worth it. For me, it's worth it because it means it, it's a reason why we are here. Uh, well, well, well I, I think the next step that Israel should take is they should just, uh, you've had, your elections don't work for Israel, scrap that, make Bibi uh, supreme <laughs> leader, and he can just carry on until he passes away. God, you know how, do you know how, you, you wouldn't last four minutes in Tel Aviv. <laughs> no, I would, no, because when, because I'm hoping to go 
Tizra again. I don't know if I said we were booked in, but hoping to go next year. And I was thinking, I just want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to Bethlehem. I want to go to the Sea of Galilee. I don't yeah. care about Tel Aviv. So <laughs> I could just bypass Tel Aviv completely. Yeah, you can actually. But, you know, I tell you that the, I'll tell you the start of the, the first day of the trip with Tommy was he um, he flew in from Luton, I think, on a crappy flight that got here at three in the morning. And I said, there's no way I'm coming to the airport at 3 a.m. Sorry. I'll meet you at the beach in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Um, so I said to him, just, you know, get a cab, go to this particular beach. There's a nice coffee place. Have a breakfast. I'll see you about nine o'clock when I've dropped my kids off. And so I picked him up from the beach. Um, we drove down the coast. We turned inland. We went into a place in the desert called Arad, which is where Kay used to live, which is mm. our tour guide. We picked her up. We had lunch in a pub in a rad with lots of football pennants from every club in England all over the walls. Uh, and then we drove down to the Dead Sea, up around the Dead Sea, all the way to the Sea of Galilee, mm. around the Sea of Galilee. And then we slept that first night on the uh, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. That was the first day. So that's, wow. that's like a third, well, two thirds of the country, you know, basically south of Arad, there's nothing until Elat, it's just yeah. a big desert. Yeah. And, and then the next day we went and did the Golan Heights and we were literally standing on the border with Syria. So that's the, that's the scale of the place. It's tiny. It's absolutely tiny. Um, you know, and we, we did other stuff like we, we went and stood, uh, we went to a lookout over Gaza and um, my tour guide friend stayed in the car and said, you know, and I went past a sign that said, don't go past this sign. Uh, <laughs> and we went there and we climbed this sort of observation tower, which is a military observation tower, but it was unmanned. But I could see all the little cameras that were just mm. like swiveling. And I said, we've got about four minutes. And we, we got to the top. We take a few snaps and there's this uh, about, what, 600 meters into Gaza. There's a, a, a Toyota, you know, typical Toyota pickup truck. And it's got mm. like four or five guys on the back and it's Hamas. And they stop and they get out their binoculars and they're looking at us standing in this military <laughs> observation. <thing. laughs> and precisely four minutes later, two uh, Israeli jeeps show up. And a, and a platoon gets out with the heavy machine gunner and the, the whole thing. And I do my best. I can't speak a word of Hebrew <laughs> impersonation. <laughs> and, and then we all take pictures and they tell us to fuck off. <laughs> and, but, but they did give us a good telling off, actually. From what I understood is they were basically saying, we really don't want you to get shot on our watch. Because yeah. those yeah. guys have all got AKs. And yeah. it's a 600 meter. It would take a very, very lucky shot for someone, but it could happen. So they'd rather we didn't do that again. <laughs> Can I'm, I, I want, I'm curious, uh, I'm looking at the time, another 10 minutes or so. I'm curious to ask you about on a completely different issue, oh, the uh, tech big tech and okay. your, your kiss. And I've just bought my first doggy coin. Is that what you called it? So that, don't, oh, doggy. Oh, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> So, I mean, it's an area I know zero. I've just been reading up a little bit about it, but you're actually 
Um, we're suing. actually in court at the moment because of Facebook yeah. restricting adverts. So tell us what that is. I'll tell you what it's all about. It's quite a good story. 2018. Um, 2000, there was a big run up in, just like now, there was a big run up in crypto at the end of 2017, mm. the prices went mm. woohoo. And in January, at the very end of January, 2018, Facebook suddenly said to the world, uh, crypto, uh, the whole cryptocurrency industry, everything to do with it, hardware, software, wallets, yep. exchanges, all of it, it's frequently associated with misleading and deceptive practices. And they lumped it in with binary options, which is total fraud. Yeah. And they banned it all. They banned it all from advertising on their wow. thing. And they put this in their general terms and condition. And so every single person who has a Facebook account and ever clicked that accept, mm. they have a contract. Or at that time, they had a contract with Facebook that included this ban on an entire industry. Without reference to specifics, and uh, about a month later or three weeks later, Google did pretty much a carbon copy, and then Twitter did a carbon copy. Interestingly, Twitter did their ban on cryptocurrency advertising just at almost the same moment that Jack Dorsey's other company, um, uh, uh, the payment one, Cash App. Okay, they started selling Bitcoin for the first time. And Jack Dorsey started tweeting oh. uh, that you could buy Bitcoin with Cash App. Mm. And that was at exactly the moment that Twitter banned everybody else. And then later they relaxed their rules. This was funny. Facebook then relaxed their rules to say, if you were a publicly traded company, you could, um, you could advertise. But there were almost mm. no publicly traded mm. crypto companies. Oh, except for Jack Dorsey's one. And then everybody did. Bing, Square. Snack. Someone's put up Square was the, the Square. Square is the one. That's right. That's Jack Dorsey. So they were selling crypto in early 2018 for the first time, just as uh, as Twitter was banning it. So my friend actually is a lawyer from Australia, lives here now, but he was a telecoms lawyer back in the, the late 90s. Mm. And when the telecoms were all deregulated, um, these were all government monopolies that were suddenly being turned into private companies. But the government's put in place rules that said, you can't prohibit someone else from using the telephone system, even if you think they're going to compete. It would be like the telephone companies, like British Telecom or the Australian um, telephone company saying, you know, this internet thing, we think it's frequently associated with pornography and scams. We're just going to ban it. You're not going to have the internet on our telephone line. Yeah. And they could have done that, but they couldn't because that was illegal. It was just plain out. Anyway, those laws are still on the Australian books. And they're probably in the UK. And my friend took one look at this, especially because they put it in writing. You know, uh, Robert Barnes always says, never in writing, always in cash. Well, they put in writing these exclusionary, they're called exclusionary provisions. So they're a provision in a contract that bans an entire industry from using your product or service. Now, if the product or service being considered is digital at online advertising, I think it's safe to say that everywhere in the world, Google and Facebook together constitute a monopoly. Yeah. And when two act together, doesn't even mean that they have to have a discussion in the background, they are a cartel. 
So we have sued them under Australia's anti-cartel provisions, which say that what they've done is they've they've created a cartel contract. And we we put the case actually into court. Uh, there were a couple of changes to Australian law, one slightly negative for us, but one very positive. Which, and the positive one was to do with funding, which was that we for the first time we were able we were able to ask the judge for us not to be liable for their costs mm. if we lose. Now we we haven't been granted that yet, but the fact that we can even ask for it means that we brought this case because. Who thinks you can sue Google and Facebook? I mean, it's insane. You know, it's just me and my friend. We've raised pocket, literally, you know, uh, we, we do not have a big war chest behind us. Yep. But he's doing the lawyering work. I've done the PR and the, we've got more than 700 plaintiffs signed up, more than a billion dollars of signed up damages. Because what happened mm. was there was this massive crash in, crash in the crypto markets at January 2018. And then a few weeks later when Google did it, and then a few weeks later when Twitter, and we've got this graph where each successive ban dropped the market. Yeah. And then the, the icing on the cake was last, was in 2019, Facebook suddenly turn around and they say, oh, we're going to launch this thing called Libra. It's a cryptocurrency. Mm. And, it, it, and about two weeks before they relaxed their advertising rules such that their own product would wow. be advertisable under their rule wow. and when you check back and we've done all of this the the woman who's running libra she was appointed in january 2018 and she declared this proudly on her linkedin um and so we've got all of that in evidence and the fact that they were developing their own cryptocurrency at the time they were declaring the entire thing to be a scam yeah that doesn't change the nature of our case in Australian law, but oh boy, does it make it look much worse. And and how long has this been going for the case? Well, my friend has really been building this since you know March two thousand eighteen. He he got okay. the you know he really saw what had happened. But we put it into court uh, August last year. We've had four hearings with the judge. We're waiting on a date for what we hope will be the last one before we serve the other side. Okay. The judge, the judge is putting us to a, at first we thought he was being overly nasty, but actually he he's making us present a very, very strong case before we can even call Facebook yeah. and Google to Australia. Because yeah. as he pointed out, you know, the first time we do it. And, and again, COVID has actually made this possible because we would have had to have been flying to Australia for these yeah, yeah. call hearings, but we've been doing them on Microsoft Teams. I, yeah. I'm silent. I just sit and watch, but my friend is in his study in Tel Aviv, you know, with big lights and so on. And um, but the first time we, we go up before this judge, it was a, you know, the judge, what are you doing in my Australian courtroom, <laughs> uh, you know, in the middle of the night from Israel, thinking you can bring the biggest companies in the world, you know, but that was just, you know, because it was the first time. Subsequently, we've had like multi-hour sessions with this judge explaining crypto to him mm. um, and explaining, you know, my friend was mining Ethereum. So mm. we had to explain how my friend had three Ethereum and he sold two. But then two weeks later, he had six Ethereum and he sold four. <laughs> <laughs> but where did the Ethereum come from? It's like, well, that's 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 what he was doing you know? <laughs> and and the equipment for this you know 
the point is that my friend has got a small, you know, we're leading with his case. He suffered a small amount of financial damage. It's not big bucks, 20,000 Australian dollars or something like this. But that's indicative of entire businesses that raised money. And then suddenly they were unable to, to go after new customers because mm. their strategy had been advertised on Facebook and will, will grow exponentially. And the fact that crypto is roaring back to life now helps us tremendously because they can't say it was a bubble. They can't say it was rubbish. You know, now, you know, Tesla's buying billions of dollars of this yeah. stuff and uh, it, it's gaining widespread acceptance. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw that Berkshire Hathaway had their annual general meeting and they were uh, saying how horrendous, how, I mean, in the strongest possible terms, how awful cryptocurrency <laughs> was. And I thought, oh, that's an, I'd love to go a bit deeper in that and find out exactly why and whether it goes against their business model, you're trying to protect what you're doing. But yeah, that's a whole fascinating. Of course it does. Course it does. So. It's disruptive. And, <clears throat> you know, actually, I'm more interested today. I'm doing a lot of stuff with um, podcasting is a really interesting area. And I'm trying to bring podcasting has been remarkably free, actually, of big tech. Hmm. Even though Apple Apple were kind of at the center of it, but they didn't realize it. And now they're starting to get competitive with Spotify and they're going to take stuff back. But I'm part of a, a thing called Podcasting 2.0, working to keep it free, keep it decentralized, like the old blogs were. Yep. You know, what happened was we all had blogs and then yep. Facebook came up and suddenly everybody went to Facebook or not suddenly, slowly, everybody drifted to Facebook. And then what happened? We all get banned and yep. all our blogs are gone. and what a disaster that was because we had this wonderful diverse mm. and and distributed system of blogs and blog roles and stuff podcasting is still in that phase and we want to keep it that way now discovery and several but I, I see it very 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 critical the way to beat big tech is not to have parlor grow to the size of facebook that that's not no it's we should never ever have another facebook yeah. or google or twitter again i want them to be i want them to shrink to irrelevance our case you know we're suing them for a ridiculous we got an article in the daily mail which was fantastic with saying you know 300 billion billion dollars in damages and when my friend first told me about this case i said to him he was talking about 100 or 200 billion i said you can't do that i said and then i worked on it with him for a while and i saw what it was and i said you know what we're gonna start talking as 300 billion or half a trillion because they actually did damage of what was a very large industry and what was important about crypto and why they had to crush it and i and it's hard to prove this but but i mm. think zuckerberg understood what he was doing in 2017 um, there was this thing called ICOs, initial coin offering. Now, some of them were scams, but most of them were just businesses raising money. That was at the time when Ethereum launched. Ethereum took in vast amounts of money. I mean, I think Vitalik became a billionaire today. Um, but they took in money in a new way. This was mm. one of the first, this was the first new way of raising money since the private company and the stock listings. Yeah. Of the stock markets and that's over 100 years old mm. so this was a, a whole new idea in raising money mm. 
And Facebook understood the danger of this because you had all of these decentralized organizations. They couldn't go and buy them. You can't, Facebook couldn't go and buy a company that had got $18 billion in the bank. How are they going to buy that? Mm. Um, you know, at the time they were paying a billion dollars for Snapchat, uh, for, for WhatsApp and, and a billion dollars for Instagram. People thought they were crazy. Yeah. Some of these, these raises had put the cut. They put the competition out of reach. And I think mm. that the competition for Facebook and Google will come from decentralized solutions, maybe blockchain, maybe something else. But we've got to let the entrepreneurial spirit go free. And, and you know, with governments cracking down and regulation and all this stuff, that's the enemy. And Google and Facebook are very much part of the establishment of that. Let's... Um... I'm looking at the time. Let's bring it. I saw that uh, Ithia Steve said, let's let's do a part two. It'd be great to do uh, soon another chat, that whole area of decentralizing the internet, taking back control as individuals, and then the whole area of, of cryptocurrency with what do you do whenever, whenever states control banks and when banks restrict access, which Gabba found, of course, Tommy has found a long time ago, but Gabba found this and now have to use Bitcoin or else a mail-in check. So again, what happens and how do you get around those restrictions? So that whole area is, is fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, so maybe we can uh, do a part two, maybe in well, a I'd love to, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to have this court hearing. And when do you think you're going to have it? We, we, we really don't. We were supposed okay. to actually have it in February. It got postponed and the judge is busy. The, the thing we're waiting for is, a ruling from a judge in Australia that says you have prima facie case, you can serve these guys. And that I think, you know, uh, we're really hoping that will sort of set the world alight because suddenly people will realize. And, and I mean, we're suing them under a civil statute, you know, it's a civil mm. statute, obviously, but this is a criminal, this is, they're also criminal charges. If the Australian government, that's why when, <laughs> when Facebook did their nice country you've got there, be a shame if nobody ever heard about it again act a few few months ago yep. you know and cut australian news off the internet yep. it's like really zuckerberg you're that big you know australia has guns and <laughs> tanks and all of that stuff but facebook doesn't they're not scared of this stuff and we could we could literally hand to the australian government a a criminal complaint that they could send to zuckerberg now, I don't know if they'd extradite him or try, but that's how serious the, the behavior that they behave that they've done in Australia is that serious. It's the most serious sort of cartel behavior that anybody's ever done. In fact, as we said to the judge, we, we were trying to explain to the judge the idea that usually in law, the more they have these contracts that are illegal, each contract is an act, is an illegal act. And they've got billions of them because every user of Google and Facebook has an illegal cartel contract. <laughs> when the judge finally got that, it was quite funny because he really sort of smiled and thought, oh, my word, the scale of this. Because nobody's ever seen two billion illegal contracts all signed by the same company. Wow. wow. Well, maybe it said where to send Zuckerberg. Well, we used to be able to send people like that to Australia. Maybe we need another place. Maybe Iran would be a good place to send them. Oh, God, he'll be welcome there. 
Yeah. But let's, um, it, we could chat for a lot. It's been fascinating. Let me, um, thank you so much for your time, Brian. Uh, and so many things to go through and, and other areas I'd love to go through. So we'll look at maybe picking it up very soon. I think it'd be great to pick up some of these. All let right. Me, and let me just bring up, so again, you can find Brian of London on Twitter. And that's his website, brandoflondon.me. So go and have a look and he will update you on on that case. And I just saw someone someone said, maybe someone wasn't listening. Where are you? I can't find you. What's happening? David Sex. David, were you not listening? David Sexton says, before you go, tell tell us about how Tommy's case is going. It's hard to get info. We will bring in as soon as we know. Uh, it was last and Monday, was the final day, and we don't know. But as soon as we do, Tommy will put it out on his telegram. That's probably the quickest place to find it, and we'll do a piece on it. So as soon as anyone knows, you will yeah. know. On Telegram, if you're not in this Telegram, get in this Telegram. Best yeah, yeah. Um, So we have coming up on Thursday, just finish off with our, our viewers, Brian. On Thursday, we've got Calvin Robinson, who, fantastic, young, educated, black guy who is conservative. And he pisses off the left to no end because they are so angry, doesn't fit into their box of the hard left liberals. Was he the guy doing videos outside Tommy's? Uh, no, no, thing? don't think uh, so. No, no. Um, he he write um he write all over. He's policy exchange fellow. Uh, uh, he writes for the Telegraph and the Mail. But looking forward to having him on Thursday. And then on uh, the week after, got Brian, uh, Bishop Michael Nazarelli, who should have been the Archbishop of Canterbury. It, Tony Blair had a choice between him and Rowan Williams, and yeah. Bishop Michael Nazarelli had the. Uh, unfortunate handicap of being a Christian and believing the Bible. So that didn't go down too well. So, of course, Rowan Williams, the Druid, got in. What uh, what Britain may have been like if it had a spiritual guide in the in in Bishop Michael Nazarelli, but obviously that's history. Yeah, so he'll be joining us on, I think, Thursday week um, to discuss a whole range of issues, but where the Church of England fits in, where Christianity fits in with everything that's happened with the church going woke on every single area. So how that fits in. So be fascinating to have Bishop Michael Nazarelli. And of course, on Saturday, the normal uh, week, according to David Vance. So he'll be joining us in his usual second Saturday of the month slot, uh, giving us his thoughts on the news. So I think I will let our viewers go and let Brian get to bed. So, Fran, thank you once again for your time. Fascinating, and we will pick this up uh, very soon. So don't disappear as I finish off, but uh, thank you to our viewers. Have a good rest of your Monday evening, and look forward to seeing you on Thursday with Calvin Robinson. So thank you, and good night. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.